Welcome to Friday. Good on you. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and at the end of the week, we convene. I ask some of my journalist uh, friends and colleagues to join us, and we figure out what happened this week and what it all means. So happy to have Publicola publisher and editor Erica C. Barnett with us. Erica, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. we got KOW politics reporter David Hyde. David, a pleasure. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, Bill. And Kitsap's son, military reporter Josh Farley, who, by the way, is uh, covering an international incident right now that we'll discuss. Josh, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, happy to be here, Bill. And I can see them because we are live streaming this show on YouTube and Facebook. You can find us there as well by searching for KUOW Public Radio. If you were watching us right now, you would know what I have just discovered, which is that either David Hyde is a Seattle Kraken fan or he stole someone's hat in order to wear it sarcastically on this program. David, which is it? Uh, yeah, I purchased it. I, I, yeah, purchased, purchased hat, Bill. Okay, so you technically could have purchased the hat and not sarcastically. Sarcastic, ironically. That's uh, are possible. You, are you the Kraken? Are how far? They're 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 very close to to opening up their season here. I think next week. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, do you have any hockey fan? Josh, you're nodding your head. Oh, you betcha. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's testing a lot of allegiances around here. We have a reporter that's working on a story. We have an ice arena and, and in Bremerton. Uh, they're not that, there aren't that many of them here in Puget Sound. I think there's going to be more of them soon. And it, I think it's testing folks who maybe were Vancouver Canucks fans or lived elsewhere. I think we're seeing split households. And I think just as the momentum builds, we're going to see more and more Kraken fans. Mm -hmm. um, as the season goes on. Now, Erica, I've known you for years, and I know you to not be a fan of what I've heard you refer to as sports balls, but this is a puck and not a ball. So is this where you come into sports fandom? Well, I will say um, I have visited the uh, the Kraken uh, Iceplex up at, at Northgate, um, and I have been to the Kraken store as well. Um, but um, I should confess that that is only because I was wandering around because I showed up a little too early at a light rail event that I was very <laughs> excited for. But it was it was pretty cool to see little kids out there um, getting ready to practice on the ice. So I can't ice skate myself, but um, but the the practice facility was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like to fumble around a little bit at ice skating with the kids myself. Uh, we are going to discuss the the big news of the, that happened this week. I just wanted to note, David, that I that you and I were talking about a uh, a story that apparently, if you're going to go to a Kraken game, uh, expecting fighting, apparently fighting is at an all time low in the NHL. Yeah, less fighting. Uh, you know, for a number of reasons, it sounds like partly, you know, these players are expensive and they want to preserve their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, partly, I guess, you know, th that it, if you're recruiting players, recruiting these thugs isn't as effective as it used to be for your team. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I'm originally from Canada. Um, you know, grew up, my brother was a hockey player and my mom wouldn't let me play hockey because it was too awful and bloody. But she um, let your brother play hockey. She let my, my brother play. He was older. Um, <laughs> but my dad claims, I think, uh, and he made this up, that, that, the, that the game became violent when it expanded to the United States because Americans would only watch because they're sort of bloodthirsty. Uh, it, wow. You know, uh, which I think was completely made up, but I appreciated the fact that his kind of knee-jerk Canadian anti-Americanism included this kind of pacifist message. So I'm excited yeah. that there's less fighting. You know, faster with less fighting seems like a better game to me. International partisanship 
name-calling, insulting, nothing new. Okay, yeah, I'm into the less fighting as well. I was not invested in the fighting. Okay, uh, go Kraken. More to say about that when they, when they start playing. But let's jump into the news that uh, did take place uh, here locally this week. You know, you're about to get your fall election ballot, and the political attack ads are coming out. David Hyde, you reported for KOW on an ad against Seattle mayoral candidate Bruce Harrell that tries to link Harrell to Donald Trump and to the U.S. Capitol insurrection. Can I play the audio of the ad, David, and then and then ask you about it? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, here we go. Now, it, I got to tell you, this begins, it starts with the visuals of the U.S. Capitol insurrection, and the, then there's a voiceover that is the legally required disclosure of those who authorized and paid for this ad. No candidate authorizes this ad. It is paid for by Essential Workers for Lorena, Unite Here Local 8, United Food and Commercial Workers Local 21, Top 5 Contributors, Unite Here Tip State and Local Fund, UFCW Local 21 PAC, Unite Here Local 8, SEIU Washington State Council PAC, UFCW Active Ballot Club General Fund Washington State. Okay, so right there, that's half the ad, uh, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, An auctioneer. Yes, done by a cattle auctioneer, apparently. Okay, let's play the rest, the, the, the other 15 seconds of this uh, ad. Since the Capitol riot, Trump's top Seattle contributor donated to Bruce Harrell's campaign for mayor. Bruce Harrell returned $550, but Trump's contributor and his wife put a hundred grand into Bruce Harrell for Seattle's future. Seattle's future? And it shows more rioting. So David, will you please explain what's going on in this ad? What should we know? Yeah, well, it's not a surprise to anybody reading the newspaper that this Bruce Harrell for Seattle's future pack got a hundred grand from a real estate executive and his spouse or that this guy's a Trump supporter, George Petrie or Petrie, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, Danny Westneat covered this in the Seattle Times. And you know, that's the stuff of pretty conventional attack ad material. Bruce, ha Bruce Harrell's the most business friendly candidate in the race. Uh, you know, he, even he would probably say that. And the PAC uh, that's backing him gets money from wealthy donors like this guy. And the PAC backing his opponent that made this ad, Lorena Gonzalez, um, is funded by big labor. What's a little odd about this ad is that it draws this connection, as you said, between support for Bruce Harrell and support for the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol with video from the riot running underneath it. And you hear the tagline at the end there saying, Seattle's future, uh, with yeah. the scary video of people surging at the U.S. Capitol. And I'm just not even sure what it's supposed to mean. Um, you know, Seattle's future. How is that Seattle's future under Bruce Harrell? Yes, uh, I have questions. Erica, what was your take on this ad? I mean, I think that the basic fact, I, I agree with David, I mean, the basic fact of um, George Petrie or Petrie and his wife giving this money is, you know, that's a newsworthy and, um, and legitimate, um, you know, sort of focus for an attack ad. It's funny listening to the, uh, just the audio, um, with the exception of the rather confusing end tagline, it, you know, it sounds legitimate to me. It's when you see this riot footage that, you kind of look at it and go, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there's legitimate point in there, and then it just takes it like ten steps too far. Um, so I, I don't think it's a particularly effective ad because I don't think anybody is going to reach the conclusion that we're going to have rioting the streets of Seattle if uh, Bruce Harrell comes in and destroys democracy. Um, so I mean, as an as an ad, I think it's a little bit silly. Um, but you know, I, I I don't know. I am not probably the target audience for a lot of these TV ads. These, this is essentially a 15 second ad. And I, I just kind of see it as, as a little bit of a, a silly waste of money on the part of, uh, of the unions. Well, the ad says that, that no candidate authorized the ad. What is 
Harold's uh, opponent, Lorena Gonzalez, saying about the ad and whether she had seen the ad? Does anyone know? I, I asked her campaign about it. I mean, unsurprisingly, she's super busy, to be honest, but also she wasn't available to comment. She, they sent a statement uh, emphasizing, you know, what Eric had just described as the kind of salient facts in the ad. Uh, and, you know, drawing that contrast between his sort of fat cat donors and the fact that she's getting money from uh, union supporters. Um, I did ask the, the, the PAC that created the ad, um, Essential Workers for Lorena, uh, and I did get a spokesperson to talk to me about it, um, who said essentially that, hey, look, the PAC is just pointing out what Trump donors like this guy George Petrie want nationally, uh, and that he's also a Herald supporter, so that, you know, from their perspective, this is all legit. Well, what about the the ad telling us that this contributor donated to Harold's campaign for mayor and that Harold returned five hundred fifty dollars, but Trump's contributions, the the Trump supporters contributions and his wife's contributions put one hundred thousand dollars into this pack. What what are, what 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 was Harold able to do, supposed to do? What are we supposed to learn from that? Yeah, they they you know so. Uh, Petri donated the the maximum to Harold's campaign, which before the primary is 550 bucks. Uh, Harold says he returned that money and that he doesn't control the PAC, which legally is true. He, he can't control the Bruce, Bruce Harrell for Seattle's future PAC. He's not supposed to have anything to do with it. Um, and I did have a chance to ask Harold actually about this because we were interviewing him. Um, you know, a number of people at KW were talking to him and I had a chance to ask about this. You know, and he said, um, that he wishes that people would kind of focus more, that these attacks should focus more on his record. Um, you know, we'll see kind of what happens next week or the week after whenever the anti-Lorena ads come out, what he has to say about those, if anything. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, it's silly season when it comes to attack ads. Well, I think the the um, the salient fact about the Bruce Harrell for Seattle's future pack is that it is funded almost entirely by big real estate investors and real estate interests downtown. Um, of which, um, you know, George Petrie is one, he's the CEO um, uh, of Goodman Real Estate. Um, and I think that that's, that's really salient because right now real estate um, is very, very interested in sort of cracking down on um, encampments downtown and, you know, this idea of cleaning up downtown and saving downtown from um, from, you know, the devastation of, of COVID, but also, you know, from the very visible homeless population that, uh, that now lives there. So, you know, I think that as an issue ad it, uh, or as an, as a, uh, an attack on sort of Bruce's, uh, relationship to Trump, this ad fails because I don't think Bruce Harrell has any relationship to Trump, but, uh, more broadly, there's a definite real estate versus sort of, um, you know, social services and labor interest in getting uh, Lorena elected that is that is really salient here. I don't yeah, know if that's going to be, you know, that may be lost on voters looking at this ad, but but there are very different groups backing these two candidates and um, and those groups represent sets of values. I think that's right. But and I also think, you know, conventional attack ads might have shown like, you know, pictures of pigs and tuxedos and dollar bills and, you know, giant monocles. real estate buildings, monocles, yes, that yes. kind of stuff. Railroad tycoons, whatever. Um, you know, this one is just <laughs> the attack of the U.S. Capitol really surprised me when I saw it on my TV. I was like, what is that? Anyway. Okay. <laughs> so you're listening to KOW's David Hyde and Public Cola's Erica Barnett. We also have the Kitsap Sons, uh, Josh Farley here, joining us uh, from Kitsap County, where um, I, I know, Josh, we're, we're going to, I do want to ask you some things about uh, 
about the COVID vaccine mandates coming up. Right now we're kind of dwelling on Erica and David's beat concerning these uh, the King County and Seattle elections. So, uh, and I do want to ask about, uh, about at least one more um, King County election. Erica, there's a, you know, this another uh, controversial ad. This is a mailer in one of the King County Council campaigns, and six members of the council are calling on council member Kathy Lambert to apologize for this mailer. Would you describe that ad? Sure. I'm just pulling it up. It's um, it's a mailer that shows uh, five or sorry, four um, Democrats. Well, th- two Democrats and two socialists, Bernie Sanders, um, Kathy Lambert, uh, the King County council members, um, colleague on the council, Yermai Zahile, Kamala Harris and Shama Sawant from Seattle, um, essentially uh, sort of pulling puppet strings on uh, Lambert's opponent, Sarah Perry, who's a Democrat, and it says in all capital letters, big scary font, Sarah Perry would be a socialist puppet on the east side pushing their agenda. Sarah Perry is backed by socialist leader Girmai Zahile, who wants to defund the police, and there's an arrow pointing up at uh, Girmai, and uh, it, you know, it goes on on the back in the same vein. Um, mm. So this uh, this has been this this ad has been widely condemned, including as you mentioned by the six Democratic King County Council members, um, as racist and anti-Semitic, sort of playing on the tropes of uh, of Jews um, pulling puppet strings and then um, associating three completely unrelated of color uh, with a socialist, a quote unquote socialist agenda. Um, for the record, Girmai Zale is not a socialist. He's uh, told the Seattle Times, reiterated yesterday that. Um, nope, he's a Democrat. Um, but uh, I think that the the really offensive thing about this mailer is the fact that it, it is sort of random people of color uh, with very different political views, um, you know, being shown manipulating this uh, this woman that's running against Kathy Lambert. Other reactions? Yeah, I mean, I also wonder what specifically Kamala Harris is doing there, as opposed to Joe Biden. You know, I mean, you know what like, she's doing there. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I would say there, there's a long history of um, conservatives doing these kinds of racist ads. And what's really unusual that people pointed out about this one is that Lambert's own campaign created the ad rather than a pack, mm-hmm. um, where it's a lot harder to know who's paying for it. I did a story last year about an instance of, a, a, of another racist ad targeting a Washington State Senate candidate, Tawana Nobles, and uh, it basically darkened her image, which is a classic kind of thing to do. Um, in this case, her Republican opponent, Steve O'Ban, was able to say, well, I didn't have anything to do with that, even though, um, you know, the, the, the two folks that ran the pack that made the ad were two of his Senate colleagues. Um, and when I tracked down the company that actually made the ad to try to say, what were you, what were you trying to do in this case? Um, you know, they were, they're based in Arlington. They didn't answer their phone. They didn't answer their emails. So essentially, nobody takes responsibility oftentimes for these kinds of racist ads. That's how our political system works, thanks to Citizens United and, and the existence of these PACs and super PACs. Um, and I interviewed, um, at that time, a guy, um, Michael Charles, who's a local political consultant, who said, part of the problem here, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, because Democratic consulting firms will also resort to this kind of stuff, is that um, it's systemic racism. You don't see enough um, people of color, black people in these firms, and and therefore, they're, you know, they're willing to do anything to win, essentially. I, I don't know if that's going to work in this case. <laughs> and I also think it's, it's just weird that uh, King County Council member Kathy Lambert's own campaign put this thing out. Hmm. 
Okay, I want to pause on Seattle King County politics for now. We might come back to it later, uh, but I want to, as we are here on KOW's Week in Review, I want to turn to another big uh, issue or news story of the week, which is that, um, first of all, the good news is that COVID hospitals have been falling again over the last week, down 12%, according to the State Hospital Association. They say hospital capacity is still tight, and they're worried they're going to lose hospital workers who refuse to get vaccinated, and they get fired for that. And we did pass a sort of deadline for that this week because state workers have two weeks from now to be fully vaccinated. And since you're not considered fully vaccinated until two weeks after your shots, this was theoretically the last week to do that. So, uh, Josh Farley, uh, do we know how to what extent state workers and we could talk about federal workers, too, are complying with this vaccine mandate? Yeah, good question. I think we're we're about to find out. Um, I think the next couple of weeks, as you point out, uh, we're bumping up against the deadline. We're going to start to see how uh, sizable, uh, what kind of chunk um, there is. I think it's kind of a, you know, there's there's one thing that's posturing. You know, there's people who are saying it might participate um, in a rally. They might um, put down on paper, I'm going to quit over this. It's another thing entirely. Uh, to follow through with that, to recognize um, the, you know, the impacts on your life um, going forward. Um, for me, in, in my position, the thing that I'm watching closely uh, is now the rollout federally of this, uh, President Biden's order for a vaccine mandate, not just for federal workers, but for, you know, companies over uh, 100 employees. Um, we're here, of course, our biggest employer in Kitsap County, 15,000 people work at the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard. The vaccination rate um, has been published to be somewhere in the neighborhood of one in two, 50% or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and some polling that has been done by the unions, which are ready to go to the bargaining table um, uh, over, over this issue, um, shows that there's a sizable amount of people who are saying, you know, maybe I'll retire. I'm not going to get this vac- vaccine. Uh, that they're that they're prepared to uh, to to do this um, to potentially walk away from a federal job um, here in Kitsap County, and I know that's the, uh, we're seeing that as the case in other places. So it's all it's all happening, um, and the, uh, November twenty second, I think, is sort of the magic the the, the number, if you if you will, um, for federally, which means you know back up Moderna that five week period uh, or four week and then Pfizer. And then of course, Johnson and Johnson's a little bit closer to uh, gotta be two weeks. So I think November 8th or so. So um, it remains to be seen how, how many will, will, will carry on. And, and certainly uh, though it, it appears that we're going to have uh, a certain amount of people who are, are willing, uh, we'll, we'll see, I guess, is a, you know, that will, that are talking the talk and we'll see if they walk the walk. Right. Uh, Erica, this week was the deadline for Seattle police officers to show proof of vaccination to meet a city of Seattle mandate. Do we know how many police officers are uh, unvaccinated and and saying they're going to stay that way? Well, I believe they have it until October 18th to make a declaration um, about their vaccination status. And then, you know, that's a there's a sort of tight, you know, it's one one shot for the the two shot regimens. And then you have to have a second shot by a certain date. I see. Um, but uh, but I think you know the the city uh, did do a survey. SPD did a survey of uh, of, of people um, in the department and found that a third are unvaccinated currently. That's about 350 officers and other personnel. 
And, you know, that's been reported as, you know, as sort of the SPD is going to lose a third of the department because uh, the city is enforcing this, uh, this mandate. Um, in some places, it's being reported as a rather unfair mandate. Um, the rest of the city's unions have reached an agreement. I think the Seattle Police Officers Guild will eventually reach some sort of agreement, probably through arbitration. But ultimately, and more importantly, I think that a lot of these 350 officers and personnel who are refusing to get vaccinated so far or just haven't reported being vaccinated are going to come along and, you know, we'll be looking at a much smaller number of, of people who just simply will not get vaccinated and are not eligible for an exemption under the city's rules that will ultimately leave the department. Um, so I, you know, I think it, it, it will know in a few weeks, uh, we'll have a better sense of how big of a problem this is going to be, but it's being reported as a crisis right now. And I don't think we've really reached that point yet. Hmm. David, what is the impact? Do you suppose, what would be the impact of, of, uh, uh, would it change policing in Seattle if all the officers who don't want to get vaccinated left the force? I mean, I think Eric is, I think Eric is right that, you know, mandates are working nationally and eventually they'll probably work here. They're going to work something out. But I have heard some people say that, look, if some officers leave because they don't believe in the science, if it's if it's not a whole ton of them, maybe that's a form of self-selection that will actually benefit Seattle in some ways in the long run. Hmm. Is this um, is it really it sounds like you're saying that it's, it's not we're not in a crisis. There's not really an impact yet of the situation we're in now. And are, are you saying that the like, how long could the Seattle Police Officers Guild um, delay and bargain and and not really have to 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 get vaccinated? And is it is it could the situation change? Let's say if hospitalizations come down or is this um, are they buying time in some effective way? Do we know what's going on there? Well, I think that um, I think that it can't drag on for too much longer. I mean, if this goes into arbitration, um, an arbitrator will make a decision one way or another about whether they have to follow this mandate. I think it also doesn't help SPOG, the Police Officers Guild, that every other union, including the man the Police Management Union, has um, has gone ahead and um, and bargained their uh, their own vaccine agreements um so you know you have uh, the city the the coalition of city unions agreeing that people can get a vaccination get a first shot now and go on leave until i believe december 2nd um, until they get their second shots that's a deal the union worked out that's pretty favorable to the workers so when you're kind of the only lone holdout in the whole city it doesn't look great um, and it does put a lot of pressure on them to reach some kind of deal okay uh, when when some people say that they they fear that getting vaccinated is dangerous, it, it depends on what you call dangerous. This week, a King County woman in her late 30s died from a blood clotting syndrome two weeks after getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. And the King County Health Department says this is a complication associated with J&J's vaccine. But more than 12 million doses have been administered since July, 12 million 38 people have had confirmed cases of the syndrome. This King County woman is the fourth person in the U.S. Uh, to die from this syndrome. 38 cases out of 12 million is obviously vastly safer than uh, well, driving your car or being unvaccinated. But as with the rest of life, we cannot say that the risk is zero. Um, does anyone think this, this King County death uh, changes anything for anybody? People because, die of flu vaccines and polio vaccines. I mean, it's everything has risks. 
people die from taking birth control, but a lot more people die from um, having, uh, you know, from, from childbirth than die from blood clots from birth control. So, um, you know, I, while any death while tragic, um, you know, is, is also a statistic. And if you look at the statistics that you just laid out, um, the vaccine is safe, including the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Safety doesn't mean absolute safety and absolutely no risk, but you know, right. But it's the interplay between way risk when you walk outdoors. Agreed. It's the interplay between that and the mandate that is at, at play here, I think. But I mean, the you know, the math doesn't change because there's a mandate or because of these situations. We, we yeah. just know that the risks from getting COVID if you're not vaccinated are much, much greater than the risks of being vaccinated. That's been the case for a long time and, and that doesn't really change. And I, I would add to, you know, the reason that it's news is because it's an aberration. Uh, you know, you have just pulling up the stats here, you know, more than 6 billion doses administered globally around the world, um, and, you know, 46% of the world population, according to our world and data, has received at least one dose of a, of a COVID-19 vaccine. So, I mean, huge numbers. And again, the reason it's, it's news is because it's, it's rare, it, it, mm. but it, it did happen. Finally, Josh, is there anything um, uh, you, of course, you get a lot of media coverage from Seattle being, you know, the role that Seattle plays in Washington state. Does, I wonder whether the, uh, the, the COVID and vaccine mandate and mask mandate situation feel, seems to feel very different to you in Kitsap County than, than it does to us here. I don't think so. I think like everybody going through the pandemic, it depends on where you are. There are certain parts of our county, just as there are in King, uh, Pierce, Snohomish, where uh, masking up is uh, is a very much followed by a huge chunk, and there are places where that's that's certainly not the case. Um, so I'm interested in the nuances right now. One of the things I did this week, um, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a conversation with um, a doctor and OBGYN uh, here locally at the Naval Hospital. Um, and she's a lieutenant commander in the Navy, um, and uh, she's pregnant, and um, her name is Megan Northup, and, uh, you know, she has the ability to have conversations with her patients to say, I, yeah, I got the COVID vaccine, and I think you should too, and I just think that's a really powerful example, um, particularly in, uh, within a subset of our population um, that has had pretty low vaccination rates. And uh, so kind of tracking that and, and looking for those areas where I think when you see examples, we've seen reporting, I know public radio has run stories this week. It seems like that is uh, we, the more data that's come out about uh, regarding prenatal and with, um, with, with pregnancy, we're seeing that the vaccine is safe and effective there too. Mm -hmm. That's Josh Farley, who's military reporter at the Kitsap Sun. And we're going to talk about um, a military incident uh, here in just a moment. We've also got Erica Barnett from Public Cola, David Hyde, KOW's politics reporter. And uh, we are going to come right back and continue on with Week in Review. We are live streaming the show. We're on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, just search KOW Public Radio there and come right back. And let's finish figuring out what happened this week. Stay tuned. I'm Bill Radke with Publicola's publisher and editor, Erica Barnett, KOW's politics reporter, David Hyde, 
And from the Kitsap Sun, military reporter Josh Farley is with us. And Josh, you've been reporting on an international incident this week. What happened? That's right. So here's what we know so far. Uh, The USS Connecticut, which is a a fast attack submarine uh, known as the part of the Seawolf class, that based right here in Bremerton, uh, was involved in a collision. We don't know what the submarine hit, but we do know that 11 sailors on board were injured. Um, two of them sustained what's, what the uh, terminology is, moderate injuries, whatever, what that means. I, we also know no one had to be uh, medevaced or flown from the submarine and that it was able to re- return to port. A uh, Navy official on background told me that port is Guam has been being widely reported that this did happen in the disputed South China Sea. Uh, China today, uh, its foreign ministry came out uh, expressing serious concern with what happened and uh, the U.S., our military, the Navy is vowing an investigation into what took place. So, and this news all broke yesterday around midday. So something we're following closely uh, and yeah, well, uh, certainly curious. Uh, there's a lot of questions unanswered at this point. Yes. A couple that come to mind. You said these are in disputed waters. Is there any reason to think this was sabotage um, and beyond the danger to people on board? I also, of course, think and I, don't, I know nothing about nuclear subs, but when I hear about a, a collision, I think about whatever the nuclear propulsion system is there. It sounds kind of ominous. Do you know anything about any of that? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, at any given time in Kitsap County, uh, and in, in the, by association, the waters of Puget Sound, you've got nuclear reactors operating in aircraft carriers and in submarines, um, and they have uh, for for many years, for decades. We, uh, they, the Navy did come out and say that the propulsion plant uh, on board, there was no issues. Uh, we'll we'll have to kind of wait and see. Um, it, it is important to note, I think, obviously, as we see this pivot um, that is being talked about by the administration, even previous administrations as well, uh, but um, certainly with the news of Australia um, joining uh, a very small group of nations, the U.S. and the U.K., and in, in using this kind of technology so that that's coming down and, and has certainly been in the news. But these Seawolf-class submarines are interesting in their own right because there are only three of them, and they were built during the Cold War, or they were planned to be built during the Cold War. And then, the, of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Iron Curtain falling, um, you have you, the U.S. military, the Navy did not, Congress did not budget more of them. There are supposed to be many more of these kinds of subs, but they're essentially, they are the most secretive, they are the most capable, deepest diving, um, well-armed submarines in our submarine force. Um, and there, we have a lot of submarines in, in the Navy. Um, and uh, these three have been uh, on, on deployment uh, this year. Uh, and, and of course, with what's, what's happening between the governments of uh, the United States and with, with China, uh, these, I mentioned the disputed waters of the South China Sea. Um, you know, China believes it has a lot more territory in the Pacific than the nations uh, around it. Many of the nations like the Philippines um, and Vietnam believe that their exclusive economic zones cross over with what, um, uh, and, 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 and China disputes this. So mm-hmm. there's a lot, uh, this is a very geopolitical story, of course, but um, one word we're obviously tracking first and foremost to make sure that every, everybody's okay 
um, and um, and and secondly, you know, kind of determining, hey, what was the case here? What was the status? This is a submarine that does reconnaissance, does a lot of that kind of work. We're just going to have to see. Um, uh, you know, they, we can speculate, but um, it, you know, the there will be an investigation. Hopefully, that will will be will be seeing in the, in the in the months ahead. You can read more about uh, of, of more of Josh Farley's coverage of this uh, the incident involving this Bremerton-based sub. Uh, he's the military reporter at the Kitsap Sun. Uh, turning back to the Puget Sound area on our Week in Review, this week Seattle's light rail line opened up over the weekend from Husky Stadium to Northgate and two other stops in between. KUOW reporter Joshua McNichols told us about the artwork in the U-District station. On the train platform in the University District, deep underground, people are all looking up at the wall. Mounted on the wall are sculptures of windows, fire escapes, air conditioners, the kinds of things you might see mounted on the outside of an apartment building. Inside the windows are films of people doing the kinds of things you might see through an apartment window in the University District. So you see people sitting there reading, having conversations, dancing, <laughs> playing music, eating, all those kind of things. The artists slowed down the film a little bit to give these activities a contemplative feel in contrast to the fast-moving trains. In one window, a woman blows out a candle and the room goes dark. That is a very fancy light rail station uh, compared to the ones that are, for example, outside at surface level. Somebody described the South Seattle stations as double wide bus stops in the middle of the street. Uh, Erica, is this a fair contrast? I mean, I think it's a, an absolutely obvious contrast. Um, I will say just quickly on the, the art at the University Street Station, it's really cool, but it does remind me of um, like a stage set for West Side Story. Um, <laughs> and it feels like it's not um, actually a Seattle style apartment building. But anyway, um, that's In just- fact, I've, I've, I've been there and the because it's on Brooklyn Avenue, the sign says that it's inspired by Brooklyn. And I, and I think that originally it was gonna be called the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Stop. Yeah. Well, we it's we don't have Brooklyn here, um, for better or worse. But um, but I, I going back to the the distinctions between the stations. I mean, it could not be more obvious when you ride the train. You know, let's say from SeaTac to Northgate. That once you go underground downtown, I mean, it's just a completely different experience. And you know, just the speed of getting from Northgate to Roosevelt to the University District Station is uh is amazing and then you get down in south seattle you're on the surface you are essentially um a bus on rails um and you know the the train has to stop for traffic um it has to stop for red lights um and it's just it's really slow and people get hit people get hit and i mean i think the 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 main contrast i mean i don't think that every station needs to be the taj mahal but the main contrast is that, you know, when you're underground, it's just, you know, it's safer, it's faster, it's easier, it's more predictable, it's more reliable. And when you're on the surface, it's the opposite of all those things. So, um, so it does feel like, you know, even though Southeast Seattle um, got light rail first, um, it, it feels like it, it, you know, there's a, there's a huge contrast in just the quality of the experience of riding between, you know, Southeast and, uh, and North Seattle. David, what did you notice about the light rail extension this week? I just heard the reporting. I haven't been there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it's better than the bus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I would say wherever you are. Um, I love riding the light rail when I get to do it. I mean, I'm over in Ballard, so I think Erica may know. It's like coming here in like 2039, maybe. Um, so I'm just hoping I can still walk 
Um, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Josh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're, you're in Kitsap County, far from this light rail station, but you're not far from public transportation and a big problem in public transportation. Sure. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're getting around to bus rapid transit at some point over here. We'll, we'll see. But, um, but yeah, certainly, you know, I think the planning, I was, uh, you know, certainly the first year that uh, Sound Transit opened the line to the airport. You know, I think each of these, it's almost anthropological, like they, it takes so long to open, it takes so much uh, earth to move, concrete to install, that, you know, th that first line has the now the uh, disadvantage when they had to think about it in terms of, you, you know, you're trying to serve these really dense communities right off the bat we have they had to think of a standalone just one line and now of course we're starting to think bigger because the lines are getting longer and you have to wrap your mind around um you know how how do you get to the airport i think the airport trip correct me if i'm wrong is close to an hour what is it 49 minutes from uh, northgate station is that right erica uh i'm i'm not that uh wonky of a transit expert I'm okay. sorry, Some, but it's something, something like that yeah yeah so i mean yeah, you're going to be going through those stations where the density is, and that is one of the the drawbacks to light rail, as Erica mentioned. You know, you go up to to Vancouver, BC, or take the BART in the Bay Area, for instance. You know, with a heavy rail system, and you know things are plugging along. There's no traffic to cross. There's no risks of those, you know, less risk of collisions, and uh, you know, so we've got the system we've got, and uh, you know, certainly it's going to take a while to, to extend those things. I recently did do, I will say this, I did the bike ride. I did both bridges for the first time, the 90 and the 520 on my bike. And sir, and uh, I'm excited to see, you know, we're only, a, I think a couple of years away now from having right light rail across for, you know, first for the first time across a floating bridge. Um, but I don't know how they're going to, you know, what do you do? Can you, is there, say, could there be a, an express train through? Is that even a, a, the idea of that? Um, when, when, as you point out, it's, it feels very much like a bus stop when you're at an international district or when you're at uh, Soto station, you know, these are, these, these places feel, um, you know, like a, it's, it's going to be the slow train going through there. And Josh, I was thinking about the public transit that you're struggling with uh, oh, yes, on, in Kitsap yes. County being the state ferry system. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do not recall a time when our, our Washington State ferry system has felt so broken. Um, of course, Kitsap Transit started a fast ferry between the communities Southworth here in South Kitsap County, Bremerton and Kingston. Uh, so there's some relief that way with, uh, if, you, if you don't have a car, if you're not bringing a car on, but we've seen more cancellations due to crew shortages. They have to have so many crew members uh, to, to meet the Coast Guard regulations and just that really antiquated, uh, you know, uh, antiquated vessels that that they're still continuing to run and operate but it really feels broken right now it really feels like uh this is something i think the legislature uh, they've been planning for additional capacity additional vessels but certainly something i think our our lawmakers are going to have to be thinking about is how getting back to a semblance of what is what, what is going to be effective going forward all I right. think. Um, mm -hmm. yes, sorry, sir. real quickly on on transit and and on um, on you know the the problem of crew shortages on the ferries. We're going to see a similar problem in Pierce County. Um, Sound Transit was talking about this uh, at the at a board meeting last uh, earlier this week. 
that they're having trouble, you know, getting getting drivers to actually run Sound Transit um, train or sorry, um, buses down there as well as um, you know it could continue to be a problem in King County as well, or could become a problem in King County as well as you know they're just facing this huge driver shortage. So I think we're going to see more and more of that um, throughout our transit system in the whole region. Um, as, uh, you know, as they're trying to recruit new drivers and, and losing drivers as well. Erica Barnett, David Hyde, and Josh Farley with you. Uh, I can see them on YouTube or Facebook. You can uh, watch the show by searching KUOW Public Radio. We are breaking down the news of the week here on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and we're going to uh, start to wrap up the show, wash our hands of the news, if we can find a place to wash our hands, and uh, and we'll, <laughs> then we'll, we'll, we might honk you goodbye uh, when you uh, stay tuned to Week in Review. This is Bill Radke, enjoying the company of journalists Josh Farley with Kitsap Sun and KUOW's David Hyde, Publicola's Erica Barnett. Erica, the city of Seattle was supposed to build a whole bunch of street sinks so people would have some place to wash their hands, especially important in a pandemic. At one point, I think there were supposed to be 100 street sinks, and there are so far one. What happened? Well, what happened is that the city uh, got over-involved in regulating the street sink program for reasons that, you know, are up to speculation. But um, the uh, a group called the Clean Hands Correct Collective, which was led by Real Change, started talking about this right at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And they originally proposed putting them um, in every single council district. Uh, this ultimately led to a plan for 63 street sinks throughout the city. Um, Mayor Durkin got involved and um, said that uh, essentially the, the sinks, you know, sort of hold on a second here. These sinks need to be put out to bid. And we're going to throw in all these other requirements for this um, request for proposals, including things like uh, disposing of food waste that don't really have anything to do with hygiene, um, and particularly hygiene for people experiencing homelessness. So ultimate uh, deal was that it, the sinks had to be completely ADA compliable, not compliant, not just wheelchair accessible and that they have to have a system for disposing of gray water that doesn't involve just putting a planter there and letting the, the dirt absorb it and throwing the dirt away, um, which was the original plan. So uh, two companies or two organizations got the contracts, um, Real Change, Clean Hands Collective and Seattle Makers had a much more expensive prototype. But because of all the requirements, um, a lot of nonprofits that have been, you know, approached or have approached the city about hosting a sink have discovered that they're going to be on the hook for um, connecting the sinks to the city sewer system for, you know, creating um, level street beds or level sidewalks and creating, you know, building ramps for wheelchairs and things like this. And it's just um, too expensive and too much of a hassle. And, um, and some nonprofits that I've spoken to have said, you know, we really wanted to do this, but the city seems to think that we should be responsible for a lot of things that um, we think the city should be responsible for. So only one has been built. It's at El Centro de la Raza in Beacon Hill. And um, there are apparently up to five more that could be built at some point. But, you know, the pandemic's been going on for almost two years. And, um, People don't have a place to wash their hands. And what's happening is, you know, very predictably, preventable diseases are spreading um, and they're, um, you know, they're spreading in homeless encampments um, because uh, people, people don't have access to soap and water. And that's really 
what the bottom line originally was. And it became about a lot more than that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Any questions uh, from Josh or David or reactions? Uh, anything to, to add to uh, Erica's excellent rundown there? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious real quick, Erica. You know, one of the things I think about is the way in which we've learned so much through the pandemic about the science around it. I'm just curious if, you know, there's maybe less acknowledging. I, I love the emphasis on hand washing. I'm very pro hand washing. <laughs> and it's a great thing, but that the science around COVID and COVID spread certainly has more to do with aerosols and it's pointed in that direction. Is perhaps this become a less of a priority for that or is that, does that have anything uh, to do with it, you think? Well, I think, um, I think that certainly, um, you know, early in the pandemic, COVID was one of the diseases that people were, you know, concerned about with hand washing. But all along, I mean, there has been a, a real concern about outbreaks of hepatitis A, of Shigella, you know, these sort of, um, there's a lot of sort of intestinal diseases that, um, that spread very rapidly when people can't wash their hands. And that became really evident early on when we had hep A outbreaks, when we had shigellosis, I'm probably saying that wrong, outbreaks, cryptosporidium, and, you know, just other diseases that, um, that spread through fecal matter on hands. Um, and, you know, these, these, these outbreaks have been documented again and again and again by King County Public Health. And, um, and they don't seem to have had much impact on the, on the sense of urgency to actually get these sinks up and running. So um, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what the motivation for so much resistance from the city has been, if it's just that they don't like working with Real Change, which is, um, you know, an organization that has advocated against a lot of city policies or what, but, um, you know, we've seen the scientific evidence and it's clear that if people could wash their hands, these, these diseases would spread um, less rapidly than they in fact have. David, I want to make, to make sure we uh, save time for me to ask you about, about something. Here at the end of the show, we like to, because uh, the news can be, can be distressing, so we try to find something to smile about. What happened this week to make you smile? And I wondered um, how you, was it smile worthy that there's this uh, story came out about apparently an increase in the willingness to honk on Seattle streets. Is that a frown? Is that a smile? And I want to hear from my other guests. Uh, what's that face? You know, the, the emoji face where it's just like kind of a blank blank. I use that one. Yeah. This one, you know, yeah, the, the straight the mouth. Yeah. Straight mouth. Yeah. Um, okay. So my confession on this story is that I, I am a honker sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up mostly on the East coast where, you know, it's a form of communication. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can also understand the anxiety. I've lived here for a number of years, and I've gotten used to your ways uh, <laughs> on the West Coast. Uh, nobody has the right of way. Nobody knows who has the right of way, for example. Or, uh, you know, just the, the turn signal thing. I was with my son um, driving recently, and I said, watch and see how many people use their turn signals at all to communicate anything. And it's just, they're optional, right? Um, so I think kind of it does make me smile to think about what's happening now is that we're now getting the, the sort of aggro driving from the East Coast, all the honking on top of all of the worst driving habits that people uh, have here at the Seattle. It's all kind of converging at the same time. Um, and, you know, it's it's not a great situation, actually. You got some smiles here from the from the panel. Erica gave a thumbs up to honking. Texan? Aren't you from Texas? <laughs> I learned to drive in Houston, um, uh -huh. you know, where where we drive fast and we drive decisively. Um, and I think that the uh, uptick in honking may be uh, people who moved here from anywhere other than Seattle 
um, who are, you know, perhaps frustrated and alarmed by the random meandering driving style that um, is the local custom here. So uh, when mm -hmm. somebody randomly drifts into people's lanes or, you know, doesn't seem to realize that they are on a road with people behind uh, <laughs> the wheel of a multi-ton vehicle, you know, it's just a little friendly reminder that uh, we're all out here together and this is, this is reality. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that, that kind of made me smile as well. And uh, the other thing I, that made me smile this week is, is going back to the Lambert story um, with the, with the ugly mailer that she put out. Um, it this made me King smile. County Councilor, uh, County Kathy Council Lambert. member, yes. yeah, put out the the ugly and, and racist mailer. I, I, what made me smile is that I think that there is a lot. There wasn't um, a lot of um, sort of. Well, is this racist or is this problematic? Um, you know, people. There's a lot of opprobrium about it, and rightly so. Um, and I think the fact that um, we have at least come to the point where it is not um, okay to put out such a. And in fact, you know, the Seattle Times, which endorsed Kathy Lambert reversed their endorsement over this mailer and um, is now endorsing Sarah Perry. So, um, you know, the conventional wisdom has moved ever so slowly toward, uh, yeah, this is really bad and it's not okay. And we're all gonna condemn you and point fingers at you for it, Kathy Lambert. So that yeah. made me smile. Josh, you were telling me that you smiled at an, at an outage, at a breakdown this week. Well, how's that possible? <laughs> I don't, I, I have, I have, I need to process these emotions yeah. a little bit more, but something happened on Monday. I think you guys know what I'm talking about, where for a little while there was no Facebook uh, and it was very odd. We, we rely so heavily to uh, have discussions, to push, push um, our stories. I think we, I meaning um, many of us in, in journalism and uh, there was a break from that. And I, 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 I'm reserving, maybe he's reserving some judgment, but um, we're seeing also potentially the start of uh, a reckoning. I, I, you know, I, in, my, in my eyes, we saw the whistleblower this week, a number of Wall Street Journal, number of stories that have come out about the practices of uh, essentially the elevation of, out, of more, the more outrageous it is, the more engagement, the more, the more money there is to be made. And, you know, um, that's, uh, to me, I find that really problematic. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And um, I, I would, um, I'm, I'm very curious to see what the future holds for this. I, I believe in the power of social media. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of good that it can do, but um, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I, what made me smile this week was taking a pause and uh, for, for a few minutes, a few hours, mm -hmm. it felt a little blissful. Okay, a smile, <laughs> a smile for, for a respite but a for maybe a frown for the loss of an important tool for journalists. I think that's going to earn a straight mouth emoji uh, for the second time here in the last two minutes sure. on the show. Um, yeah. we, you have been listening to Week in Review. That was Josh Farley, who's the Kitsap Suns military reporter. Erica Barnett is Public Hola's publisher and editor. David Hyde is KOW's politics reporter. And uh, we're, uh, we're done. That, uh, that was a great wrap-up of what happened this week and what it means. Thanks a lot, team. Great to see you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. And I also want to thank uh, all the folks who make the show possible. Uh, Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz produced the program. We get social media and live streaming from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I'm Bill Radke. I'm uh, smiling because you listened again this week. Let's do it again next week. <laughs>